are, right, spiritually dead until Jesus came to this world to die for our sins so that whoever believes in him would have their spiritual lives renewed by the Holy Spirit, made alive, right, and we're brought back into relationship with God to have eternal life. And so those who don't give their lives to Jesus remain in their state of spiritual death, separated from God for eternity. Okay, I hope we have these basic elements of the gospel clear because this sets the foundation of what I'll be sharing uh, over the next few days. So, since we are eternal creatures, we are more, we are designed and we will also persist our spirits uh, more than just this world, what that means is that eternity has already begun for us from the moment we were created, not only when we die. We don't only have to worry about eternity after we die. We have to worry about it now because it has already begun. Now, tomorrow, we'll be looking at eternal consequences. On Sunday, eternal life. But today, we're looking at eternal relationships because since each person is an eternal being, what that means is that all our relationships have an eternal quality to them. Just think about that. That as we relate to one another as eternal beings, our relationships have an eternity, an eternal quality to them. And so even if our bodies are different, we would still be the same, same people in eternity. And so our relationships matter for eternity. I suspect that's one of the reasons why in the Gospels, Jesus emphasized so much about how we relate to, one, to, to others and to one another. As much as I love my two dogs and four cats, Jesus didn't directly teach about how we should relate to animals or how we should relate to plants uh, other than, well, he used a lot of gardening metaphors and parables uh, and he taught the, the general principle of stewardship but he focused a lot on human relationships. And so Jesus focused on relationships. Paul and the other New Testament writers had a very similar emphasis. God, uh, in his interactions with the, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, also focused a lot on relationships. God cared a great deal about how his people would treat one another. In, in fact, if you think about the Ten Commandments, Six out of ten of those commandments are about relating to other people, the majority of the commandments. Now, why am I talking so much about relationships today, of all days? Well, today is Maundy Thursday, and the word Maundy comes from the Latin word mandatum, okay, which means command, commandment, and it comes from the the, the phrase uh, that is found in John chapter 13, verse 34. A new command I give to you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. So Maundy Thursday tends to focus on the events, two main events usually that happens uh, the day before Jesus was crucified. Maundy Thursday, we usually think about foot washing, right? Jesus washing the disciples' feet 
or we think about the Last Supper. But today, our passage comes from another Maundy Thursday event that usually doesn't get the spotlight, and that is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so today, I want to focus a bit on the difficult side of love. Our big idea today is that Jesus showed love for others even when it was difficult. Okay, so that's our takeaway. Jesus showed love for others even when it was difficult. Now, for those who follow Jesus, our eternal life has already started now. Remember, eternity now. But we are still living in this sinful world with our sinful nature, relating with other people who are not absent of sin. And that makes relationships difficult now. So let's look at Jesus under similar circumstances of difficulty. Now the first thing we can learn from Jesus in how he, uh, how, how he is in the Garden of Gethsemane is that he struggled. I think most of us have this picture of Jesus as, you know, perfect man, yes, uh, always calm, collected, always having the upper hand in every situation. Or whether he's rebuking the Pharisees or he's healing people or he's driving people out of the temple, we get this sense that he's always in control, you know, carrying himself with authority and strength. Even on the cross, he's praying for the forgiveness of others. He's assuring that the criminal would be with him in paradise. And so that does seem to be the case from what the Gospels tell us, that Jesus usually has it all together, right? This perfect image of mankind that we strive to be. But we know that he was not without weakness because he was a man. From today's passage, we see another side of Jesus. Verse 37 to 38 tells us that he was sorrowful and troubled, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Now, the Greek word for this sorrow is literally being engulfed in this sorrow. Our modern version we will call it drowning in sorrow. And so Jesus was drowning in sorrow. What was he so sorrowed by? Well, we know he was sorrowed by the thought of the, the, the coming suffering and the coming shame and all that. But I think there was another element uh, in what he knew was coming concerning his disciples because he knew that Judas was going to betray him. Right, the, towards the end of our reading today, he says, here comes my betrayer. Uh, he knew that Peter would deny him. He told him so. He knew that the rest of the disciples would desert him in his lowest point. And so this coming betrayal and abandonment by the people that he was closest to for three years would surely have contributed to this great sorrow. And so one reason for his struggle was because of relationships. We see in other places in the gospel that Jesus doesn't only teach about how to relate to others. He himself, he is also personally affected by others. Uh, other than feeling sorrow because of others, he is grieved at the death of Lazarus. He got angry because of religious hypocrisy and abuse. Relationships troubled him at times. And so 
it wasn't limited to this moment in Gethsemane, but relationships with others would cause Jesus to struggle. But on top of that, three times he prays to God to have the cup taken away from him. What's this cup? Jesus mentions the cup as a metaphor for suffering. Right? When he uh, asked James and John, he asked them, are you able to drink this cup that I am to drink? He's talking about the, the suffering, the painful death that he's going to die. And so Jesus struggled immensely and it was for the sake of others. The whole reason behind this struggle was the Father's will to have Jesus be the atoning sacrifice for all the sins of mankind. And the whole point of that was so that mankind would have the opportunity to be restored to right relationship with the Father. Ultimately, the cause of Jesus' suffering was for the sake of relationship, was for the sake of other people. I remember how Jesus is fully man and he is a model for us to emulate a standard to strive for we we looked at this on sunday i think that should give us some perspective that if jesus the man who never gave in to temptation and never sinned if even he struggled because of relationships then we should not expect our human relationships to be without struggle right we need to be uh, clear about that. I'm sure there are many times that we feel like we should just give up trying to relate to somebody because it's just too messy. They are too difficult. Maybe we should just avoid that person altogether. And at times, I mean, at, at times we might need to for that particular time. For example, if you are in an abusive or toxic relationship, that you're not able to manage in a healthy way. Okay, yes, uh, maybe you should avoid that person at that time. But let's just set our expectations right. We should not expect our relationships with others to be devoid of struggle, not while sin is still present on this earth. And so if you notice that you have a pattern of dropping a relationship or avoiding a relationship or running away from a relationship because it's difficult, because there's struggle, uh, then that is going to happen a lot because every relationship is going to have struggle. If Jesus struggled, we should expect struggle. Now, let's not forget the potential that we have in influencing others for eternity amidst all this struggle. If someone came to Christ because you were patient with them or because you went the extra mile for them, even though it was difficult, would you say that that is worth the struggle? I'm not saying that every relationship will guarantee an opportunity to share the gospel effectively. But I am saying that we don't know what sort of potential impact we can have on somebody's life for the rest of eternity. And so our relationships are not without struggle, and we never know what God can do for eternity through our struggle. Uh, sorry, Sujin, you want me to use the handheld mic? Would that? Can I? Okay.
Okay, let's continue looking at Jesus. Let's continue looking at Jesus. Despite his intense struggle, Jesus obeyed. He obeyed the Father. Three times, he prayed for the cup to be taken away from him. And in the same breath, three times, he prayed, the Father's will be done. Jesus knew exactly what was coming. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew his sacrifice was not going to be a peaceful dying in his sleep or just a quick heart attack. He knew that he would be receiving the full extent of God's wrath and judgment for the sins of mankind throughout all of time. Despite his struggle, he obeyed the will of God that he would go through all that for the sake of others. And so we see here a very intentional obedience to God's will, and that took priority over the vulnerability of his own flesh. We've established that human relationships will not be without struggle, and these struggles are caused by usually sinful attitudes, pride, envy, fear, insecurity, uh, whether in ourselves or others. But despite those real struggles, God gives us commandments to govern our relationships. Because just as he doesn't want sin to be present in our relationship with him, neither does he want sin to be present in our relationships with others. God is not satisfied with you know, a flawed relationship. And so God gives us commandments to guide us more towards what our relationships will look like in heaven, where we can finally relate to one another without the presence of sin. And we can finally relate to one another in, without struggle in heaven. God gives us commandments to guide us toward that. What are some of these commandments? There's a lot, okay? Like I said, so much in the Bible is about relationships. But let me just name a few. Uh, I mentioned just now, the six out of ten commandments that tell us not to do uh, certain things to our fellow men. Many of the prophets in the Old Testament wrote about God's command for his people to be treated with justice, to be treated with mercy. The golden rule revolves around treating others by how we will want to be treated. Last week, we looked at how Paul wrote to the Philippians to have the same mindset as Jesus in their relationships with others. In other letters, he also tells them to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, only using words that will build others up instead of engaging in corrupting talk. John tells us to have integrity in our relationships. The writer of Hebrews tells us to encourage others Peter tells us to have unity of mind, to be sympathetic, to be compassionate, to be humble towards one another, and so on and on and on and on and on. God gives us commandments to guide us towards what relationships should look like. And so I've been using the word commandments a lot because, friends, none of these are suggestions. None of these are optional in the Word of God. They're all given in the language of command. Uh, if you look at all these uh, commandments, they are in the Greek 
tense or the Hebrew tense, they're all imperatives, right? The language of commands. Which means that responding in the way God commands us through the Bible, even in the relationships that we struggle with, that is a matter of obeying God. It's a matter of obedience. And so this means that however we feel or however the other person is behaving, there is always a right way to treat them because God has commanded it for the good of ourselves and the good of our relationships with others. So that is the goal. That is what God wants us to achieve, to, to aspire to. That's the goal. But how do we reach it? How do we reach it? Uh, we know j that just because God has given a command doesn't mean that we will automatically obey it. I mean, our whole lives tell us as much. The Israelites show us also uh, their inability to keep the law as it's given to them. So let's look at our Lord Jesus Christ, our standard of obedience. How did he keep the law? Well, let me ask you a question. If you had to best sum up the life of Jesus in one word, what would it be? What is that one word that would sum up the life of Jesus? Yeah, I can hear you shouting <laughs> through uh, the, the people attending online. I can hear you shouting through your devices. That one word is love, right? That Jesus is defined by this one word, love. Paul writes in Romans chapter 13, verse 10, love is the fulfillment of the law. Why? Why is it? Is it because that if you love somebody, God won't care if you stole from them? Or that if you love somebody, God won't care if you kill them? Is that what it means? Of course not, right? That's not what it means. God's law is good, right? He wants what is best for his people. And so love fulfills the law because love motivates us to want what God also wants for that person. And that would be the same as what he commands in the first place. So if you love someone, you wouldn't want to steal from them. If you love someone, you, would, you wouldn't want to kill them. You would want to be kind and compassionate to them. You would want to treat them like how you yourself would want to be treated, which is pretty much God's laws, his commandments. And so love motivates us to fulfill the law. Love fulfills the law. It's really not that complicated. And yet, it's so difficult. And that's because we don't naturally love others. We tend to only love ourselves, maybe our family, and even then, it's very imperfectly. Now, coming back to the mandatum that the word mandi comes from, Jesus says in John chapter 13, verse 34, 35, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Two things I want to emphasize from this command. Firstly, that Jesus commanded his disciples to love one another as he had loved them. 
Now remember, Jesus was in the garden. He was wrestling with the fact that he was going to go through all that intense suffering physically, spiritually, and all that anguish for the sake of people who were undeserving. Close friends who would betray him. Close friends who would deny him. Close friends who would abandon him. Strangers who would clamor for his execution even though he did nothing to deserve it. Strangers who would mock him and ridicule him. He would go through all that suffering for their sake while they were so undeserving. Romans chapter 5, verse 7 to 8 says, Very rarely will, some, will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what this verse is basically saying, the ultimate act of love, dying for another person, that is possible when that person is lovable, when loving that person is easy. But Jesus went beyond that. He performed the ultimate act of love, of dying for mankind, even when mankind was still so unlovable and so difficult to love. Friends, who do you find difficult to love? And let me just add another question. Do you think Jesus loved them enough to die for them as well? And so this is the standard of love that Jesus calls us to. To persevere in love for others while they are still unlovable, while they are still unrepentant. And this goes beyond... Remember how I talked about the golden rule, love others, you know, okay, do unto others as you will have them do unto you, right? This goes beyond loving others like ourselves. Because loving ourselves is easy. The new commandment that Jesus gave his disciples takes it a step further. The new commandment is to love others even when it's more difficult than loving ourselves. And so Jesus commanded his disciples to love one another to the extent that he loved them. Secondly, that loving one another would identify them as disciples of Jesus. The second thing that this new commandment uh, that Jesus gave to these disciples can teach us is that loving one another would identify them as disciples of Jesus. And when we hear about the sort of love that Jesus had for others, it's very extraordinary. There's a very recognizable quality about it because it is so rare the way Jesus loved others. In 1993, sorry, this is a bit small, but uh, let me just tell you the story. In 1993, Mary Johnson, uh, she, has a, she had a 12... 20-year-old son, her only son, he was murdered by a 16-year-old guy named O'Shea. At the trial, Mary Johnson told O'Shea that she forgave him. And ever since his release from prison in 2010, 
they have lived as friends and even neighbors, next door neighbors, literally. Uh, when I read this story, my first thought was, this must be a Christian woman. And I was right. Uh, the, the full story is that initially when Mary said she forgave him, she still harbored hatred in her heart. Uh, later, many years later, the Lord would convict her while she was preparing for a Bible study that she was leading. And then she would eventually visit O'Shea in prison. Two hours later, uh, she would tell him, express with, with sincere heart that she really forgave him. Uh, he asked if he could hug her and, and you know, she, left, she, she hugged him and left the prison without any bitterness, hatred or anger. Mary would eventually go on to found an organization called From Death to Life, which promotes healing and reconciliation between families of victims and those who had caused them harm. Until today, she considers Oshea, who is her son's murderer, she considers him her spiritual son. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Mary Johnson is easily recognizable as a disciple of Jesus because of the love she showed for someone intensely difficult to love in her circumstances. The killer of her only son. Still, she loved him. That identifies her as a disciple of Jesus. And so friends, I'm sure most of us are no stranger to loving someone. Whether it's our parents, our spouse, our children, our siblings, long-time friends, SG members, badminton kakis, people we just hang out with. But when other people see how we love others, by the things that we said, the things that we did, how and why we said and did those things, when other people see how we love others, would they be able to recognize us as disciples of Jesus? Or would they say, okay, so you love other people. People who don't know Jesus can also love like that. Right? Would they be able to identify us as disciples of Jesus by how we love? In the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 5, verse 46 to 47, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. In conclusion, Jesus loved those who didn't deserve it to an extent that they didn't deserve. He displayed that kind of love to the disciples at the upper room when he gave his new commandment to them after washing their feet within moments of predicting Judas's betrayal and Peter's denial, still he loved them. He displayed a kind of love as he struggled what he had to go through for the sake of humanity at the Garden of Gethsemane, drowning in sorrow, still he loved them. And he would display that kind of love as he hung on the cross 
when those who hurt him, mocked him, he would pray for them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The sort of love that Jesus demonstrated is the same kind of love he commands us to have in our relationships. And as eternal beings, our relationships have the potential to have an impact that will last an eternity. If we could love others like how Jesus loved us, we could have an eternal impact. And so I'd like you to know that Jesus showed love for others even when it was difficult. I'd like you to be obedient to God's commandments in your relationships and do love others like how Jesus loved you. We invite us all to just bow our heads, close our eyes, and just reflect for a moment. God has placed in our lives all sorts of people, in our home, our workplace, our school, our neighborhood, our church. God has placed in our lives people we like being around, people who share the same values as us, people with similar interests and people with likable personalities and attributes, people we work well with, people who are encouraging and life-giving. Thank God for them. Love them to the same extent that Jesus loved you. God has also placed in our lives people we cannot stand, people with different priorities, people we have nothing in common with, people who are unpleasant, people who are eccentric, people who are uncooperative and make life so difficult for us. Jesus' command applies to them as well. Love them to the same extent that Jesus loved you. Not because it's easy, not because you feel like it, not because you're forced into it. Make that choice to love them sincerely because God loved you first. And so may I invite you now to just spend some moments asking God to search your heart. Is there anyone you have been finding hard to love? And if a name or a face surfaces in your mind, would you bring that person before God in prayer? Would you ask God to help you to love them like how Jesus loved you? Ask Him for the patience. Ask Him for the compassion. Ask Him for the strength. And ask Him for the humility. Lord, we confess that we have not been loving in all our relationships. We confess that many times we are part of the problem. Our pride gets in the way. 
we allow bitterness and unforgiveness to take root. But we want to release those things, Lord. We don't want to be held captive by them. And so, Lord, will you grant us the courage to love like how you loved us? Where our hearts need to be changed, would your Holy Spirit do his work unobstructed? Lord, have mercy on us. Help us to keep an eternal perspective and draw us to greater love in all our relationships. We pray this in the healing name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.